Well, good evening. Guys, just take your time coming in. Very informal. As people keep coming in, just find a seat. Make yourself comfortable. I'm glad you guys are here for, uh, I guess we're in the fourth session, the fourth week of our series on the parables of Jesus. Let me uh, say a prayer and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this day. Thank you for our country and I pray for its leaders that their hearts would be turned toward your purposes in the world, that your hand would be on this nation to glorify your name in the world. We thank you for the freedoms that we have and we do not take them for granted. I pray that we might also be agents of change where injustice does exist in our country and in this world. Pray, Father, that we would always be your representatives with grace and truth and love. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you uh, probably know you can text questions during class. I think that number is also on your handout, but text them in. We try to answer as many questions as we can. I'd like to know how you're reacting to the lesson and what would edify you, what, what would uh, kind of answer your questions. We are doing a study of Jesus' parables because, for several reasons, one is to hear the good news from Jesus' own lips. If you remember, Jesus taught, oh, about 35% of Jesus' teaching is in the form of parables, in the form of these stories. And all of the stories, a parable is basically an analogy. It's sort of, I'm going to tell you this story and it applies to life and I want you to draw the analogies between the two. So we're doing it to hear from Jesus' own lips. And secondly, the parables give us the whole story so that we can really calibrate our vision and not just see some things clearly and other things blurry. And when we emphasize one of Jesus' teachings and not the other, we tend to lose sight of the balance of the, of the good news, of the gospel. So the parables, we study the parables, we're going to get all the breadth of Jesus' teaching. We started out with the parable of the sower. That's a parable about parables. In other words, he said, I'm, I'm going to give you a parable about what I'm doing here. I'm bringing this good news, and the hearts of people are like different kinds of soil. And so he's sort of preparing and saying, this is how these parables are going to be received in the world. Then we talked about some of, we didn't talk about all of them, but we talked of some of Jesus' kingdom parables. That is a foundational idea. You cannot, in my view, understand the teachings of Jesus or the gospel without understanding the kingdom. The kingdom of God, a great way, a short way to define it is the place where God rules, where his rule holds sway, whether that's in the hearts of individuals or in his creation. Remember Jesus in his, uh, the Lord's Prayer, thy you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the place where God's will is done, where God rules. So the kingdom is the basis. Jesus understood his ministry as I came here to usher in the kingdom. I'm bringing the rule of God and he made it possible for us to enter that kingdom. In other words, took Jesus to redeem us so that we could come from the world into the kingdom. This is at the essence of the good news. So we talked about the kingdom parables. Then part of the kingdom, we moved on to eschatological parables, uh, what I call judgment parables, heaven and hell kind of parable. And we talked about just a few of those, but Jesus had a lot to say about judgment. It's an integral part of the kingdom. You remember I said, my view is that the ethics or the morality of the kingdom of Jesus' teaching is really indefensible without ultimate justice. And that's what judgment parables are about. They say part of the kingdom is bringing justice to the world. And God's justice requires a separation, if you will. 
good from evil, obedient from rebellious. So we looked at the judgment parables of Jesus, and that's an integral part of the kingdom. One I didn't share with you, I'll just read you a little bit of this. This one's really probably fairly well known to most of you, so I tried to pick ones that maybe weren't. But in Matthew 25, for example, you get the story about the sheep and the goats. Jesus said this, when the Son of Man, Jesus, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, this is the final judgment, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people. Remember we talked about judgment as fundamentally a separation. He will separate the people one from another, kind of like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And by the way, that's a really graphic image to them because when they graze uh, the herd, the flocks over there, in Israel, we, we typically go and see some Bedouins and the flocks, and sure enough, the sheep and the goats are all mixed in together. And so shepherds routinely separate them. And he said it's going to be like that. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Come, take your inheritance. What is your inheritance? The kingdom that was prepared for you since the creation of the world. In other words, Enter the kingdom, the rule of God. And then he goes on to say, because when I was hungry, you fed me, etc. But he turns to the others, and he said, he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, the rebellious ones, the ones who rebelled against God. And he said, and I'll tell you how I know that. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. In other words, you pursued self-interest, you pursued evil instead of good. And so you see this idea of judgment in the kingdom. It's an essential part of the kingdom. Which brings us then to the next question, and that is, well, how then do I get into the kingdom? This becomes a compelling issue for us, knowing that as the scripture says that we're all under judgment, we've all sinned. No one is righteous, the scripture says, not even one of us. And so we stand there in the face of God's kingdom entering the world, and this promise of separation of judgment, and so it becomes a very compelling question. How then can I get into the kingdom? I want to frame that in, an, in another way and say, how then can I be saved? Because that's effectively the way the scripture is going to talk about salvation, is how then can I be in line with God's rule? Another way that word is translated a lot, salvation or being saved, is the word rescue. Because you're going to see the scripture thinks about as God's rule comes into the world, he came to basically rescue people who are following the way of the world or the ruler of this world. So I thought I'd start with a couple of examples to make this home. These are all people that need to be rescued <laughs> in one way or another. Some rescued from their own stupidity. Others rescued from their circumstances, you know, and that's probably a little bit true for me too. But basically, the scripture talks about salvation as rescuing us from peril. That's why I wanted to tell, teach you, want to talk about Jesus' judgment parables before I talk about his salvation parables. Because now you understand why salvation is an issue. If judgment is inevitable, then salvation becomes a very compelling question. So I'd like to talk about, again, just a few of these parables. I want to talk about just three of them that I put on your note page. So let's jump into the first one. This parable is called the narrow door, and it basically asks this question, will very many people be saved? What an interesting question. 
Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he's made his way to Jerusalem. Remember, what was Jesus teaching? We talked about this in the kingdom parables. We don't, we don't think about this very often, but if you look in the scriptures, it talks about Jesus began to go through all the places teaching, repent because the kingdom of God is near. He began teaching the kingdom and the need for, you need to enter the kingdom. So he began to preach this all, the, all around. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be rescued or saved? And he said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now, that is a really interesting answer. I mean, it's just on the one, it's like, wait a minute, I just asked you if many people are going to be saved, and you start talking to me about enter through some narrow little door. Interesting in two ways. And the first, I just want to make a point here. Notice that Jesus' concern is less about the theological, hypothetical question he's being asked, will very many people be saved? And more, a very personal, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus is always more concerned about the fate of the questioner than he is about a hypothetical or theological question. Not that those aren't true and he's gonna answer it, but notice where he goes first, he said, okay, and we see this a lot. You probably have friends that want to ask you a lot of hypothetical questions about heaven and hell. Jesus answers always first, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door. He's intensely concerned about the questioner before he's concerned about the hypothetical situation. But he goes on to say this. He said, make every effort or strive, or actually that word is where we get our word agonize. Strive to enter through the narrow door because many... I'm telling you, will try to enter, but they won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, please let us in. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, wait, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But the owner of the house will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, evildoers. Jesus said, and there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. So let me unpack that just a little bit. He's talking about salvation, you know, this idea of there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, you get this sense of judgment because you can't see salvation without judgment. There's no good news without bad news. The gospel without sin, without judgment, is really, I like to say, it's a solution looking for a problem. But once we understand the nature of the kingdom and judgment, now salvation becomes compelling, and that's what he's saying. He said, you need to strive to enter through the narrow door. Because, and get several things out of this. Number one, there's only one door. He didn't say you should strive to climb the mountain through many of the various paths to get to the top of the mountain. He said, there's a narrow door. There's only one door. It's open, but it will be closed. And there will then be people who have entered that door and many who have not entered through that door. So in a sense, he's answering the question by saying no. There won't relatively, whatever that means, be that many people that will be saved because the door is narrow. And But his point is you need to strive to enter while you can. He's talking to the Jews kind of specifically saying, you all think you're all going to heaven. 
You all think you're already good. He said, but actually, some of the first will be last. He says, when he says people come from east and west and north and south, that was kind of code to say, there are going to be a lot of non-Jewish people that are at this feast and a lot of Jewish people that aren't. He's saying, basically, salvation is for everyone. And that's what the New Testament talks about. Everyone can be saved. In other words, God's offer of salvation is not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile as well. But you have to enter through the narrow door. There's a great uh, lesson. Actually, let me give you a little more specific statement before I do that. That's a parable, but over in Matthew, he just makes a statement. He said, enter through the narrow gate, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So you put those two together and he's basically saying, no, there will not be a lot of people who are saved. Kind of goes back to the sower. In other words, there'll be many people that hear this word, but not very many that bear fruit out of it. Now, we don't know what that number is. We just know that Jesus says, no, there won't be very many. But the key idea is, is it is open. In other words, this offer is being made. The seed is being sown to everyone. A couple of interesting lessons out of this, and we'll move on to one that gets a little more complex, but I like the narrow gate one because you get the idea that there is one way, and that way is Jesus. This is one, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but this is one of the big differences between Christianity and any other religion. Other religions or philosophies would be just as valid if they had a different founder. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's about the ideas, it's about the teaching, it's about whatever they propose to be the truth, it could have come from anyone. Christianity, that's not true. You can only have one founder, and that's Jesus. Jesus is not giving you spiritual truths like the Buddha did. He's not pointing the way like other religious leaders and other religions have done. He says, I am the way. In other words, Christianity is not the same with anybody except Jesus. That's important to us for this reason. This is a side note. I was talking to a young man recently who made this observation. It's really, it ties in here. We don't follow a cause. We don't follow a philosophy or a system. We follow an individual. In other words, we are followers of Christ. We are not followers of the Christian cause, the followers of the Christian way, a lot of religions do that kind of thing. We follow the founder, the only one, the narrow gate. We follow Jesus, not a cause. And then secondly, I just want to draw a conclusion about the door. Interesting thing, it is a narrow door, but it's a door. It's not a wall. In other words, this door is there to be walked through. It's not a wall that you have to climb over. And you already see the seeds of how then can we be saved and Jesus is sort of planting the idea of it's not by your effort. It's not by climbing over some wall and achieving something. That salvation is like walking through a door, narrow door, but it's a door that you walk through. So he begins by kind of describing salvation as this process of a few people are going to enter the kingdom and the entry is through a narrow door and it won't be open forever. Second parable. This is one that you've heard with a different name. I call this the lost, and this is really what it's about, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. We like to call this the parable of the prodigal son, but it's really about lostness, if you will. So let me set this up. 
these three come right together. They are talking about exactly the same thing. He's going to tell this little triad of stories, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. But here's how it starts. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. They were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So let me set the context of this just a little bit. These parables are in response to the religious good people of the day complaining that he was consorting with sinners and tax collectors, people that were not good. And by the way, you notice that the text acknowledges they were sinners and they were tax collectors. There's nothing in this text that says, ah, oh, they were just really good people deep down. No, they weren't. Yeah, they were sinners, but they just had a few bad breaks in life. No, that's not the way the text portrays it. It really portrayed as these people were not very righteous people. They weren't acting in ways that you would live in the kingdom. So he acknowledges that, and so he's going to respond to this criticism of why you're doing it. And the first thing I want to set up is a huge contrast. In this, the Pharisees look at the world as good and bad. There are good people, the ones that are trying to do what God wants them to do, and there are bad people, the people that are not doing what God wants them to do. And I'm not saying that that's, that doesn't have an element of truth to it, because it does capture the judgment idea. But by looking at the world in that way, it leads them to withdraw. In other words, what are they complaining to Jesus about? Those are sinners. They're the bad people. You are not supposed to engage them. You should withdraw. Looking at the world as good people and bad people caused them to withdraw from people. Now listen how Jesus responds, because he's going to turn this paradigm around quite a bit. So Jesus told them this story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? They all go, well, sure, of course you will. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, this is the analogy, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one of these sinners who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Well, that's interesting because he says to them, you guys may not need to repent. You see yourself as right, and these are sinners. He said, but God's economy is rejoicing over when these people cross that boundary, when they come into the kingdom. So he's changing the paradigm, and instead of saying, well, God likes the sinners too, he frames it as an idea of lostness. That's a different concept for them. He also uses the idea of sheep, by the way. This is a theme in the, in the Bible. Here's a passage from Ezekiel. This is God talking to his people, Israel. This is what the Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, I'll look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered. I will bring them out of the nations, gather them from the countries, and I'll bring them into their own land. I'll pasture them on the mountains of Israel. I will tend them in a good pasture. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in rich pasture. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will search for the lost 
and bring back the strays. So you get this idea of a, Jesus is thinking about this idea a little differently than the Pharisees are. He's thinking about it more in the idea of lostness. And he goes, and this happens a lot with the parables. Remember, we also saw this with the treasure in the field and that you sold everything to buy the field and then the pearl of great price, the merchant sold everything to get it. They twin these parables a lot. So he does that. He tells the exact same message a different way. He says, or suppose this. He said, let me tell you another story. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now remember, they've got no lighting. They've got dirt floors. And so it's very difficult to find something. So she's going to sweep it and try to find because that's a lot of money. Well, this is the, by the way, it's the only place that word is used for these coins. And it basically is talking about a substantial amount of wages. It said when she finds that coin, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus begins to change, when he answers their complaining, he begins to change the paradigm. He's changing the way you look at it. In fact, he says this, in a different, you remember this story. This isn't a parable, but I want you to, to see how he portrays what he's doing. Uh, this is the story of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Uh, he was wealthy. He was considered absolute sinner, total betrayer of his own people. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was a short little guy, wee little Zacchaeus, right? Climbs up in a tree, sees Jesus walking through Jericho. Jesus looks up and said, why don't you come on down because I'm going to stay at your house today. Scandalous. I mean, that's exactly what they're complaining about, at him about, is that he's hanging out with tax collectors. Why would you associate with this guy? And so the people saw this, they began to mutter. He went to be the guest of a sinner. But while he was in his house, Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save what was lost. You see this idea of lostness again. Jesus is going to turn this around, and he's going to say the Pharisees separated the world into good and bad. Jesus is going to separate people into lost and found. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't think that there are sinners or that Jesus thinks they won't be judged or that Jesus said, I accept you the way you are. None of those things are true. We just saw the judgment parables. He clearly says, if you are not in the kingdom under the rule of God, if you are a sinner, if you are a rebel, your fate is sealed. But instead of choosing to look at the world as good versus bad, he chose to shift the paradigm and said, I'm going to consider people lost and found, and my job is to come seek and save the things that are lost. And so Jesus chooses to turn that around. So the Pharisees, in seeing good versus bad, withdraw from the world. Jesus says here in these parables so vividly, if you think about it as lost things, what do you do? You don't withdraw, you pursue it. You go find the lost sheep, you look for the coin. 
So when he's answering, he's not rebutting the Pharisees and saying, no, nah, these people aren't really sinners. He's just saying, you're thinking about this the wrong way. He said, I came to go seek. I came to pursue the things that were lost so that they could become found. Profound difference of viewpoint, and it's one that informs our viewpoint. So the essence of salvation for us is basically finding lost things, lost sheep, lost people, and helping to point them to the narrow door where they can be saved, where they can enter the kingdom. Does that make sense? It's just a slightly different way of looking at it. Now, salvation doesn't become a transaction. What do I need to do to be saved? Well, follow these five steps and they'll issue you a card, put it in your wallet, you're going to heaven. You know, that's a kind of a transactional way of thinking about being saved. Jesus thinks about it in way bigger terms than that. He says, you are lost. You are going down a path and you have no idea where you are going. He said, and I need to find you. And he says, so that you can repent. The word repent and its basic meaning means to change your mind and change your path. It's got this essence of turning and going a different direction just plays perfectly into this image of being lost and being set on the right track, being found. That's the idea that Jesus is painting of salvation. And so our goal is not to separate ourselves from sinners. Our goal is to think of them as lost and seek to find them. That's why we're called to evangelism, meaning go take the good news because there are lost people out there. Well, he's going to take it to just a little bit different uh, level. But before we do, I want you to think about this idea of lostness. Uh, Boyce says it this way. Here's a really powerful lesson here. If you are lost apart from God, this is the first application of these parables. And I agree with that. You are valuable to God even in your lost condition. That's different than the Pharisees. Pharisee says, good, bad, worth something, worth nothing. Jesus says, found lost, and all the examples of something are lost have value, something you would love to find, to bring back. This parable is saying you are valuable to God even in your lost condition. You may be worthless in your own sight because you can only see what you have made of yourself, and that is so true about all of us. But you should learn that you are valuable to God because unlike us, he is able to see what you were created to be and what he can yet make of you. Jesus doesn't look at our current state because we're sinners. He doesn't accept sinners, but he goes to engage them because he sees them as lost. And that's a powerful idea is he sees what we can be. He sees the potential future. And so as we begin to be followers of Christ, we need to look at the world in that same way. We need to look at the potential, not the reality of that. Lost and found versus good and bad. Well, let me pause there for a minute before we, he's going to take it up one more level in the third story, but let's pause there and see if we have any questions. Yeah, um, back on the parable of the door, um, it can be troubling because it implies that you can believe you're following Jesus and then come to find out that you are not. Do you think that we can stumble because of intellectual misunderstanding? Uh, that's a good question. First of all, my the Bible seems to clearly teach that there will be people who think that they are following Jesus and they are not. 
In fact, I'm going to show you one in the next story. But you also see uh, Jesus talking again in Matthew 7, where he said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord. Uh, and I'll say, I don't know who you are. And he'll go, are you kidding me? I did all these great works in your name. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you workers of evil. So there's several places in the scripture where it talks about our perception of what we're doing is not what judges us. You're actually going to meet somebody in the next story who's in exactly that same uh, position. So yes, the scripture does teach that, that it is possible to think we're following Jesus. But I, want, I don't want you to think about, oh no, I just made a mistake. Remember we talked, let's go back to last week. Hell is not for people who have made mistakes. Hell is for people who are in rebellion against God. So this isn't like taking a test and say, oh no, I just believed the wrong thing. I added up the numbers and I got the wrong answer on the math problem and now here I am in hell. Although many people think math in itself is hell. But anyway, bottom line is I don't want you to think two things. I want you to know the scripture does teach that, but it also teaches that this isn't for people who make innocent mistakes. We'll, we'll reconcile that in the next story, I think. That's a great question. Which leads to another question that we have, which is, um, isn't eternal hellfire like a life sentence for stealing an apple? Yeah, this is, uh, let's talk about the idea of hell for a minute. It's a little off track, so I'll try to keep this brief. If you, yeah, if you think, this is a common misconception like proportionality. This is talking about basically proportionality. The basic argument behind that thinking, and I understand that a lot of people say, hey, hell's not fair because you do certain sins, but then you pay for it forever. It, we feel like it's not a proportional response. God does. So what does that tell you? You draw one of two conclusions from this. One, God's not a very good God. He's not fair. He's got some kind of anger management problem and he's going to punish people forever for some kind of minor infractions, right? Or, second conclusion, we completely misunderstand the nature of sin. The Bible will tell us that the view of the Bible is we completely misunderstand the nature of sin. We do not understand how much God hates sin, how sin destroys us. If you think about it the way the scripture talks about it, he says this, there's a ruler of this present world, there's a duality that's set up, and there's the kingdom of God, and you serve one. Remember we talked about no man can serve two masters? Because you're going to serve somebody, whether it's Satan, the ruler of this present world, Jesus said, or it's going to be God in the kingdom. And so we think of sin as some kind of little transactional thing. Well, I made a few mistakes. Okay, they weren't mistakes. I intentionally did some bad stuff. But come on, it's not that big a deal. God doesn't think of sin as transactions. God thinks of sin more like this. Read Romans, uh, what is read Romans? Perfect explanation of exactly how the Bible thinks about this. Bible thinks about sin not as a transaction, but as a terminal disease. Sin is like having Terminal can I hate to even use this because I hate cancer. I just hate that. But my point is, sin, this is a better analogy, is like having terminal cancer. It's not like, oh, I better take a few pills and I'll probably be okay. No, you're going to die. You understand what I'm saying? 
God sees sin as a terminal condition of rebellion, of not rightness, of ultimate injustice. You go, well, I just did a few things. That's not the way God thinks about sin. That's not what sin really is. In the scripture, you're going to talk about being on different paths. He's going to say, you either serve God in obedience, which leads to life, or you serve sin, which leads to death. He doesn't say it might lead to death. He says, that's where that road goes. That's where that disease ends. So the, di the problem in that is, if you think of sin as transactional and not that big a deal, definitely you would have trouble with hell. God does not think of it that way. Fair enough? So if you want to understand how God sees it, this makes perfect sense from his point of view. If you want to disagree with God, well, you're perfectly free to do so. We'll see how that plays out. But basically, that's, that's why we have that issue of proportionality. We do not understand the, the nature of sin. Okay. One more question about sin, and that is um, unforgivable sins. And uh, I have a specific question about that. Can a person who is divorced and remarried still be forgiven for sin? There's one passage in Scripture that talks about an unforgivable sin. And no one knows exactly what it is because the Scripture isn't trying to spell it out and say, you can do everything you want, but if you make a U-turn where it says no U-turn, that's the big one right there. You know, it's not, it doesn't spell it out. It actually gives you some hint of what it is, and it's pretty pretty bad idea of basically calling the works of God the works of the devil, saying that God himself is evil. You, you kind of get that sense to it. But I will tell you this, there is, uh, there's no chance, and this is just all through scripture, that you sort of, oops, I unknowingly committed the unforgivable sin. That's not the way that works. It's not, oops, I made a mistake and I did the one thing. You don't get any sense of that in the scripture. So this specific question of can you be divorced, remarried, be forgiven of that, the answer is in the scripture, absolutely. All your sins can be forgiven. This one unforgivable sin is just not something you need to think about. It's not something that you blunder into. The scripture doesn't talk about it that way at all. So sins can be forgiven. That's what Jesus came to do. Make a way for us with all of our sins on us to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, great question. Well, let's take this parable to the next level. He's talked about lostness. That's a key idea of thinking about this. But let's take it from an inanimate object to a person. And that's what he does next. He says, he continued. Now he said, I want to ratchet this up a little bit that you kind of understand this idea of, of lostness. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, and he basically was feeding the pigs. Jesus is intentionally telling this story in as offensive way as he can, because the Jews are there like, oh, terrible son to ask his father for his inheritance before his dad dies terrible to go off and sin in all this wild living and, and sinful indulgence and doing things that are just he knows are not right. And then he sinks to the level where he's so unclean himself, he's actually dealing with these unclean animals. Jesus is just painting the picture of like, write that kid off. Good versus bad, definitely in the bad category. So watch what happens. So at this point, 
He said he wished that he could eat what they were eating, but nobody gave him anything. Well, it says then he came to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll tell you what, I'm going to turn around and go back. This story tells the salvation story in geography. Think about the geography of what's happening here. He turns his back on his father, the kingdom, the life that he has, the love, etc. He leaves and goes a different path, a path that is sin that leads to death. He even wakes up and goes, I'm going to die. This is nuts. Turns around and goes back a different path to the father. He says, I'm going to go back and say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a hired man. So he got up and he went to his father. This is a visual picture of what repentance looks like. He's just telling it in the form of a story of geography. So he goes back to his father. You know what happens. The father's been hoping that he would come back. And he runs out to him. Before he can even say anything, hugs him, says, I love you. Clean him up. He smells like pigs. Cleans him up. Basically has a feast for him and says, welcome, you know, back home. The lost son has been found. But notice, this adds an element of will. In other words, he's not an inanimate object. He didn't get lost through no fault of his own. He sinned. He made a choice. He made a willful action. The father doesn't go look for him, does he? It's different. The father doesn't look for him, but the father is thrilled when he turns around and comes back. So now we've taken the idea of lostness and we've taken it up a level and begin to apply it to people. So what is actually happening here in this story? Think about the steps that are happening. There, I'm going to put this in religious language. The lost son is convicted of sin. In other words, he comes to his senses and goes, this is crazy. I have sinned. I, this leads to death. I am sinning against my father. I'm sinning against God. He becomes convicted of sin. And what really happens is, and being convicted of sin is such a religious thing to say, coming face to face with the truth about who we are and where we're headed. That's what conviction is. In other words, I have basically just come face to face and acknowledged the reality of who I am and where I am headed. He's convicted. Second thing he does, he turns around and goes another path. He repents. You've seen this word repentance all over these parables. It says he was going this direction, he turned, and he's going that direction. Physically in this story, he recognizes the reality of his sin, he turns around and goes back to the Father, and then he is reconciled. That is the picture of what salvation is. Salvation is recognizing the reality of where we are, being convicted of our sin, turning around to seek God who has made a way for us to be reconciled. This is the picture of salvation. Acknowledging the truth, turning, and then trusting God. We're reconciled to God by throwing ourselves on his mercy and say, I'm just going to trust you. He doesn't say, I'm going to make a deal or I want you to restore me. He says, I don't deserve anything. I'm just going to throw myself on the mercy of the court, if you will. That's the picture of salvation in this story. And again, it's still couched as lostness. Is Jesus saying, oh, he's just a good boy. He just went the wrong way. No, he's a sinner. He's willfully in rebellion. 
Jesus agrees. You have sinned against your father and you have sinned against heaven. But he's turned and come back and he goes through that narrow door. So this is what, what he's talking about here. Again, you see the idea of looking at it as lost and found. And now there's a reason to pursue. But unlike the coin, this can't be done just by the father. Does that make sense? I realize I'm making some statements here that theologically I'm playing a little fast and loose with that, but I want you to get the idea that now that a human being is involved, coins don't repent, sheep don't repent, but people can repent. In other words, we can turn around. And so he introduces that element into this idea of lostness. One of the great lessons here is to act like an owner, not like an employee. Does that make any sense? Act like an owner, not like an employee. Take some initiative. God has given us a will and given us initiative. And in this story, you begin to see that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Don't misunderstand me. But God has given us the ability, whether it's through provenient grace, election, whatever theology you want to put around that, the idea of this parable is, is that there is an opportunity for us to turn. And there is a willingness on God's part to reconcile us. And so we need to think more like an owner, not like an employee. Not wait to be told what to do. Let's basically say, I know what God has done. There's the narrow door. He didn't say, here's a narrow door, and I'm going to go out and grab people and drag them through the door. He says, this door is here, but it won't be open forever. You need to strive to enter the door. So you begin to see this interesting interplay between uh, God and his human beings and the ability that we have to repent. Again, I would argue that even that ability is God-given, but the ability for us to repent. Now, let's complicate it just a little bit, and we'll get back to that question. Let's talk about the older son. So while he's having this party, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music, and he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? He said, oh, your brother came home. Your father is having a big old feast for him. Older brother is mad as he can be. I mean, this is good versus bad. He's a bad kid. Well, he's definitely a sinner. He sees the world that way, and so he got angry. And he, didn't, he wouldn't go in. He wouldn't have anything to do with him. And the Pharisees are hearing this like, hey, wait a minute. I think some of this is about us. Exactly. He said they wouldn't go in. He wouldn't even hang out with him. And so his father went out and began to plead with him. But he said, look, I don't think you're treating me fairly. I've been the good guy. I've been doing all the rules. I deserve this but you haven't given it to me. And he said, son, you were with me and everything I have is yours. By the way, that's literally true. Because if the younger son got his inheritance, everything else that the father owns goes to the older son. The younger son's already squandered his piece. He said, literally, everything I have is yours. And he said, but we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. So you see the themes start to pick up. This idea of salvation is about going from being lost to being found. There's a more profound sense in which it's going from dead to alive because the scripture is gonna talk about salvation not as changing your behavior, not as getting on a self-improvement plan. Think about how the scripture always talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. Jesus and Nicodemus, 
What does he say to Nicodemus? You have to be born again. You have to be reborn. You can't just take the old guy and fix him up. You need to be reborn. Romans, Paul says, our old man has to die, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. There's a transformation, not just a refurbishment going on here. He was dead when he was walking that path. He is new. He's alive now. He was lost, and now he's found. And so you begin to see this idea of the, the lost and found. The, the really clever thing here is there are two lost sons in this story. One of them is lost because he willfully went down this road. The other one is lost because he thinks that obeying all the rules puts his father under an obligation to him. He actually thinks that his behavior is what makes him in a right standing with his father. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying to the Pharisees, yes, these sinners are sinners, and their road is leading to hell, and I came to find them and bring them, if they will, through the narrow door. You Pharisees are also missing the point. You're doing the right things, but what you don't realize is that doesn't make you right with God. Both of these sons are lost. They're just lost for a different reason. So that gets back to the question, can you think you're following Christ and not be saved, so to speak? That son thinks he's in a good relationship with his father, but he is not. How do I know he's not? Because instead of rejoicing when his brother came home, he's, having a, he's pouting on the front porch, and he's mad at his dad. Like, I'll just wait here until you kick that kid out right? Is that a good relationship? It's not a good relationship. In fact, it's not a relationship at all. It's a partnership. It's a business deal. I act this way, you owe me this. Both of the kids are lost. So that's how you can, quote, follow Jesus and go, I don't know who you are. Didn't I do all these good deeds in your name? He says, I don't know you. Depart from me. That's this son. So it's possible, here's a better way to say it, for religious people to not be saved. I don't like the phrase, it's not possible to follow Jesus Christ and not be led into the kingdom. But it is possible to be religious, observant, and not be, in, in, not be saved, not be in the kingdom. It's possible to be sinful and not be in the kingdom. But both of those things miss the point. Okay, one last parable that kind of ties up this idea. Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. This could be told to the older son, by the way. This could be told to the Pharisees. This could be told to any religious person. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He's really got his act together. The other was a tax collector. He's a mess. He's a sinner. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that guy, the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you what, this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Very interesting parable about salvation. What he's basically saying is, in answer to the older brother, is this. Everyone approaches God relying on his mercy, not our merit. So there's two ways to go wrong. One is to rebel, to sin. And the other is to approach God on the basis of my own merit. You see this more often than you think you do. You probably have friends who are uh, not believers in God, but they'll make this argument. They'll say, you know what? I have a real problem with your whole idea of judgment in heaven and hell, and I really have a problem with your God because you are a Christian and you're not half as good a person as I am. And when people say that to me, I always say, you're right, I'm not half as good a person as you are. And that has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. I mean, think about what this is saying. The older brother said, hey, I'm good. The Pharisee, what the Pharisee said was true. I'm doing all the right stuff. In fact, I'm kind of an overachiever, you know, on the right stuff. But the message of salvation, of getting into the kingdom is we come, we all come in the posture of relying on his mercy, not our merit. So both of those ways are ways of being lost, of being outside the kingdom. We come because of what Christ did at the mercy of God. So in this story, really interested, who's, let's go back to our little formula. I hate to call it a formula, but what, the pattern that you're seeing, who's convicted of sin in this story? Only one of these people recognizes his actual need, and that's the tax collector. Who repents? Who walks away saying, I'm going another direction? Only one. The tax collector. Who, according to Jesus, walked away reconciled with God? Just one of them, the tax collector. Because he's better? No, not at all. Because he acknowledges the truth about who he is, he repents, and God said, I will reconcile you. And he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have no other hope. So there's a really great lesson there about the nature of salvation and also a great lesson for us. But let me take a couple questions and we'll try to tie this together. A little bit off the track, but um, everything in these stories is referred to, uh, referring to adults. What about preteens and teenagers and these deeper understandings? Uh, preteens, teenagers, doomed. I, mean, I think that's self-evident, don't you? I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, serious question. Boy, somebody cuts that out of the video and tweets it. I'm in big trouble right there. there. There is a thought, and Jesus doesn't drill down to this, but think about this. There is the idea in both Judaism and Christianity of what's called, we, typically the phrase we use a lot is an age of accountability. That's what a bar mitzvah is for Jewish uh, boys is at the age of 13, which was what they said, was that you become a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments, meaning you are now old enough to know good from evil. And so you are able to take on the responsibility to choose to do what God has said. When you're two years old, you do not have the ability to choose to do what is good. And so there's this idea of an age of accountability where we can choose good from evil. The Bible doesn't specify where that particular is, but God sees the heart. 
And that's why God is the only just judge, because he understands the heart and the actual intentions of our heart. And so we typically, um, we, we don't necessarily have a specific age, but I do believe that's a very biblical idea. We believe, for example, in believer's baptism. We don't think you take your two-year-old and baptism just in case and say, okay, now for all the bad things you're going to do, you're good. That's not a very biblical idea of doing it. We believe in believer's baptism, meaning I know what I'm doing. I have repented. I am willing to surrender my will to your will. So wherever that happens, we, we understand that is that, that time period in that process. Is it a preteen? Is it a teen? It's just hard to know. But I will say this, that's one of the reasons we believe so deeply, in, and the Bible is so passionate about rearing our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> because our children are going to sin. Our children are going to reach an age of knowingly rebelling against God, knowingly sinning. They're going to reach that age, and have, if we have not brought before them the truth of the gospel, if we haven't sought them out to find them, if we have not sown the seed, then that's a perilous situation. So I don't know what the age is, but I do know that, for example, when children die, and some people often ask me, well, how's that going to play out in judgment? And my understanding of that from the scriptures is that people don't get punished for making mistakes. People get sin. You catch that disease, if you will, from our own willfulness. Think Garden of Eden. So there isn't, I believe that the idea of an age of accountability is a very biblical idea. Question about the kingdom of God. The idea that the kingdom of God is near, is that because each person is as close to the kingdom as he is to his own death? And so even though it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here and said the kingdom is near, it's still close for us? Uh, that's one way to think about it. I, I think a more natural way, in my view, is that when Jesus said the kingdom of God is near, is imminent, is at hand, you see it translated that way, the kingdom of God is entering the world but until Jesus overcomes sin and death, you can't get into the kingdom of God. You have no way. What are we going to do? Knock on the door and say, hi, I'm a good person. Let me in. Well, we know that doesn't work, right? Somebody's got to pay this price. So when he said the kingdom of God is near, I understand that to mean I'm here to bring the rule of God, and I'm going to make a door for you to enter, and that is the death and the resurrection of Christ to take on our sin and pay our price so that we can be new creatures. So I understand it as, he said, I came here to bring the kingdom, to usher in the kingdom. The kingdom is now here. It is inaugurated. It is not finished. You think about this. We talk about salvation and judgment. You talk about Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus also came, is going to come, think of the sheep and goats, to judge. Well, wait a minute, which is it? You see this beautiful pattern. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. He came to make a way for us to enter the kingdom. Jesus will return again. When you read about that in Revelation, what do you read about? Salvation? No, you read about judgment. And so Jesus can legitimately say, I came here to seek and save the lost. I came here to make a way for you to be saved. And I am coming again, and I will separate the sheep from the goats. And so here we sit with a way, with a narrow door that we can enter, and knowing that door is going to close at some day. And so we need to be about seeking 
the lost as well. That's why Jesus' last commandment to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew is go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Go find my sheep and go tell them this good news. Go sow this seed. Go tell them there's a door. Repent. Enter the kingdom of God. And so these ideas of salvation are intimately tied up with the kingdom, intimately tied up with judgment. But probably the best takeaway for us is this, because most of the people that I'm talking to, not everybody, is, are people who have committed to follow Jesus Christ. And so for those who do not, I would leave voices comment and say, know that God loves you that you are valuable to God even in our sinful condition. He cared enough to send his son to die on a cross. We desperately want to point you to the door. We are not the door, but Jesus Christ is, and we want to point you to that door. We want to tell you our story and say, come in while the door is open. But for those who are followers of Christ, we want to be careful and not become religious people. And what I mean by that is people who begin to think that our own merit puts us in a good standing with God, that we're the good people and they're the bad people. God will do the judging. He said, I'd like you to think about it as lost and found. And so go help me find my lost sheep. That should burn in our hearts. I mean, we talk about evangelism, but this is what God thinks about when he thinks about evangelism, is go help find my lost sheep. Have a passion. Don't be like the older brother and say, you deserve what you get. Stay out there. I'm not going to come talk to you but we should have a passion like Christ had to go find what's lost, what's valuable to God. Even if we can't see the value, he can. Because remember, that was us at one point in time. Make sense? Tell the good news to people. Don't be the older brother standing outside on the porch having a tantrum. All right? Next time... So this is starting to come together a little bit, and I want to turn the corner. We've done a lot of theoretical things. I mean, really, most of this has been theory, and I realize it's, it's a little harder to get some application. We're going to turn now, and I want over the next few weeks to begin to apply this because Jesus talks about parable of the kingdom. You now understand how Jesus thinks about it. The parables of judgment, parables of salvation. We understand what we're doing. Here's the interesting question. Okay, so knowing that, how then shall we live? What are the implications then for how we live? Jesus has all kinds of parables about that. One of my favorite, I just want to focus on one next time, is this idea of our everyday decisions and their eternal implications. This that we've just studied has huge implications about how we live our lives and why we decide to do what we do. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus is Jesus' perfect illustration of that. So next week, roll up your sleeves, come ready to put this into practice. I'll see you next time.